What's up, Bike Rumor fans? If you've ever wondered how 3D titanium parts are not just made, but also designed and made strong enough for high stress parts like, say, a dropout, or as you'll find out, maybe even stems, I've got Mike Smith from Number 22 Cycles here to talk about how their gorgeous new dropouts for their titanium road bikes came to be. And it's a fascinating conversation about not just how the parts are made physically, but you know all of the design considerations that had to go into them in this two-year process of little stuff they figured out as they would get a sample in and test it. And it's just, it's a really, really cool conversation. And it answers all of my questions about how these parts are made, how you go from literally a metal powder to a part that's strong enough to last for decades on a titanium bike. So, without further ado, please welcome Mike Smith from Number 22 Bicycles. Hey Mike, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. How's it going? Hey Tyler, it's going well, thanks. Good, good. All right, so we're going to talk about 3D printing, in particular with dropouts, but uh, maybe at the end I feel like there's some stuff you guys are working on coming up. Maybe we can get a little sneak peek or something of those. But um, the dropout, so you just sent out an email and we'll have a post that I'll link to about your new 3D printed titanium dropouts. And it's really sort of remarkable all of the advantages this tiny little part gives you over the prior version of, you know, this kind of like breezer style welded shell of a dropout. Give me the kind of elevator pitch on this, like why somebody should care about your new dropouts. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head where it's one of these tiny little details of frame building that has just an enormous impact on how we put the bike together and uh, and what the finished product looks like. Yeah, I think the key thing, we've played over our history with a few different manufacturing techniques for dropouts. In our very earliest years, we would buy them off the shelf from uh, from you know different frame building suppliers. Pretty quickly, we shifted into our own proprietary dropouts. We've used CNC machining of, uh, of billets of titanium. For a few years, we actually invested in a casting, and so we used um, fairly complex casting shapes for our dropouts. And now this current evolution is, uh, is 3D printed, and we can dive in more detail into the specific benefits, but the key benefits are in our construction of the frame. It gives us a way more simple is maybe the wrong word, but uh, but it really does. Um, it eases some of the frame building um, challenges that we find as far as the welding and mitering and alignment of the rear end goes. It helps integrate some of the fairly tolerance specific or areas with really tight tolerances, like it integrates the mounting of your rear brake caliper to the alignment of the dropout. And so you get a much tighter control over everything being perfectly in line to avoid, you know, any sort of weird loads or rubbing of, uh, of your rear disc. It looks awesome. And it, it gives us a really because we're 3D printing these and we're doing them in a, a pretty deep library of sizes. It gives us the ability to, you know, make custom geometry with a really tightly tailored rear end that doesn't look like it's been an off-the-shelf piece that's adapted to a custom geometry frame. And there's some real strength benefit as well. There, you know, the finished product is almost identical in weight to the dropout configuration that we were using out of CNC before these, but it's, you know, several times stronger and uh, and should certainly add some stiffness to the rear end of the bike. So that's the sort of nutshell of of why we're excited about it. 
That's cool. And that's honestly, man, like I've seen 3D printing going on on titanium, on plastic, on like all kinds of different materials. And the strength factor of it is the stuff that surprises me the most because I just, I can't wrap my head around how metal powder is all of a sudden stronger than like an actual solid piece of metal that's been, you know, chiseled away, CNC'd away or forged or whatever. So let's, yeah, there's a lot I want to talk about, about the alignment and like the fine details. But first and foremost, man, like explain to me a couple of things. So First, let's just talk about like, how is the 3D printed? Then you're calling them 3D printed centered titanium. So explain like just the general 3D printing process of titanium for us and then explain what centered means on top of that. Yeah, so the process that these are made with is, you know, generally you'd call it additive manufacturing. And so, which is where you're, you're taking a material and you're adding layers and layers and layers until you end up with the finished product. And so the, the shorthand for that that I think people have a good grasp on is 3D printing. But more specifically, the way that these dropouts are created is a sintering process. And so what that looks like or how that happens is there's a machine and the machine has a great big box. And um, at the top of that box are lasers. And at the bottom of that box starts with a very, very thin layer of atomized titanium powder. It's this really, really fine titanium powder that is specifically for this application. And so what happens is there's kind of like a, an arm that goes across and it coats the bottom, the bed of this machine in a layer of this powder. And then the lasers blast it from the top of the box in one very, very thin layer of what the finished part will be or what that depth of the part will be. And then the arm comes over again and it covers the, uh, the bottom of the box in another layer of atomized titanium and the lasers hit it again. And this goes for hours, um, you know, depending on what's running in the machine, the, the cycle is going to take certainly more than a day. And to be clear, we don't have this machine in house. We're actually working with Silka in Indianapolis. They've got the machines. They're running these around the clock. We try to be pretty ambitious, but the the cost of these machines is outside of our <laughs> scope. Yeah, I feel like Josh just is looking for things to print with that machine. He's got these machines and he's like, oh, what else can I do with them? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's I mean, they've been such an awesome partner. We we've had this project going for quite a stretch before we started working with Silka and uh, in many sort of fits and starts. And uh, and, you know, when we found them, we were just so excited because I think they are just irrationally exuberant about like how <laughs> you know how awesome a part can be and let's find the problems let's chase everything down and what's the best way we can make it and it's just you know we work with a lot of suppliers and oh man i wish they were all <laughs> at that yeah, level he gets pretty excited about what he's doing which yeah. is rad yeah oh, it's so it's so awesome and so yeah i guess when the machine runs you know you can just go layer by layer of turning that powder into melted or sintered titanium. And so where that laser blasts, it's essentially welding a thin layer of your part and it goes up and up and up and up. And when the machine cycle is done, you have a box full of powder with a welded part inside of it and you shake out all that powder and you're left with just the parts. And so it's it's a pretty wild process. And um, so is each layer, like as as the layer on top is being lasered, is it literally like just melting that layer into the layer beneath it? to yeah. essentially create a solid piece of metal. That's exactly right. It's almost like you've made an entire part of just weld bead the whole way around. And yeah, I mean, one of the things you touched on earlier is, is the strength. And this is one of the things, you know, we've been looking at different applications for 3D printing in a long time. And, you know, the final product, comparing it to like a billet of solid titanium, which is what you would machine a part out of, you know, that's the gold standard as far as material structure goes. 
And over the years, as 3D printing technology of titanium has improved, we've been going from you get material density that approaches that billet. And so, you know, a few years ago, you might have had 95 or 96 percent the strength of the billet piece, which is high. But frankly, giving up four or five percent of the strength of your part is not something that we're terribly comfortable doing. We're at the point now where after heat treating in these dropouts, the material density is 99.5% or slightly higher the density of just billet tie. And so you end up with a part that has phenomenally close characteristics to a billet piece. But obviously what's really, really interesting is that you can design this in a totally different way from a CNC piece. So, you know, when you're designing a, a CNC part, your tool can only access it from outside. And so if you start with a block with a billet, and you can see this in our previous dropouts or most other machine parts, you're just going to hog out or you're going to carve out all of the pieces of material that you can that aren't directly structural. But the solid pieces have to stay solid. You can't get a tool in in these complicated ways. And the total opposite is true with a 3D printed part where we can suddenly have all of these parts be hollow and then we can fill the inside of them with a reinforcing structure. And so you know, for the same weight of titanium in the part, we can design this in a way more structural way where you've got all this internal reinforcement. And so the result is a part that is phenomenally stronger, not necessarily because of the material property, because it's still all essentially titanium, but because of the design and because of the internal reinforcements that we're able to do by having access to the inside of the part. You know, granted, this is a pretty thin part. We're talking about like a rear dropout is a is a small piece, not a lot of extra room to work with. But could you not accomplish something similar by machining two halves and then either bonding or welding them together? And because I feel like CNCing two halves of this and clamshelling it together might be a lot faster than three D printing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the answer I think is yes and yes. You um, you definitely can <laughs> build that way, and and we can look at examples on bike parts that are made that way, like cranks. You know, Shimano's hologram cranks are a perfect example of something that there's a clamshell that's bonded together. I think where that gets difficult is the scale and complexity of something like dropouts where we have there are a bunch of different interfaces and so if you if you're looking at an image of this dropout you know there's a place where the rear um, through axle has to go we've got you know a fender mount integrated and we've got the rear brake calipers and so all of those are different forms that are part of the same piece and so i think the savings in time, you'd probably have to have substantially thicker wall thicknesses. And it may be something where you might be able to achieve that clamshell construction on part of the dropout, but likely not through the whole extent of what we're able to achieve by 3D printing. Okay. And then is clearly Shimano does it with fairly good success on their cranks, but like would bonding be strong enough for that? Because there's, there's a lot of, I imagine, a lot of loads there. Yeah. Or would you have to weld it? Because welding, I think what you, one of the things you're trying to get away from is a lot of little welds in a place where you have so many different things trying to be a perfect alignment from either side to side or up and down with the brakes. And, you know, for any of us who have installed a set of flat mount brakes and had to consistently readjust and readjust until we finally just get mad, pull them off, file it flat and then get it right. You know, like, yeah, I, I see the appeal of not having to weld something there. Yeah. And so I think that was definitely a big driver in this project, but not necessarily for the strength, but the alignment benefits are huge. And so where those alignment benefits come from is 
when flat mount first came out and you know this must be five or six years ago um we were fairly early to convert all of our bikes over to flat mount discs and it was agony you know flat mount especially for fabricators of metal bikes it's a really beguilingly difficult thing to build around um, because the dimensional tolerances are so tight and you know if, if you've got a one piece you know a, like a molded carbon rear end then you can have all these pieces in one molded carbon rear end but with uh with metal bikes the solution that we came up with and many builders came up with is you take your chain stays and you essentially weld two separate standoffs to that chain stay and those are the two posts that your rear brake caliper mounts to and those have to be mitered in so when you weld a tube to another tube you have to cut a semicircle so that they'll nestle together really nicely so you have to miter the chain stay at two different points and then you're also mitering the chainstay where it meets the dropout. And then you have to weld all of these things in together. And the real challenge is that welding is very hot. And that sounds really, you know, overly simplistic to say, <laughs> but it cannot be underscored enough. Because what happens is you throw this enormous amount of heat into the part, and then it really quickly heats up and it really quickly cools. And the result is that it distorts. And so one of the most challenging things that we have is that we've got all of these miters so we're cutting into these tubes and then we're welding these inserts into it and so we've got all this heat that's really focused in just the rear left side of of the bike and the distortion that that can create is really really difficult to accommodate and so you know we, we got very very good at it but this is the sort of thing that you know the bikes that we're making are certainly no shortcuts type of approach and so like to put a set of rear flat mounts into the bike is taking us four or more hours of one single guy filing, welding, mitering, going back to the alignment table. And it's really painstaking. And the result is perfect, but it took us hours to do it. And so what we're really excited about these dropouts is that it eliminates the mitering of the rear flat mount interface. And in our testing of these, and you know, we're at the point where these have made it into probably about a dozen customer bikes as of this point. Like they're quite new to us in, in production bikes, but every single one is coming out with perfect alignment and meaning like there's no correction that we can make. And that's just something that frankly is, is way beyond our expectation. You know, there's always the ability to perfect the alignment post weld. And every single one that we've made with these has just been like, we really didn't expect them to come out this clean. And so the benefits are really, you know, one, perfect alignment of the rear end of the bike obviously a bike is usually ridden in a straight line and you'd like it to be very you know happy to continue riding yeah, a straight ideally. line <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that's one of the very subtle things um but you know frankly there's a fair bit of room for the rear end of a bike to not have perfect alignment and for that not to be felt by the rider and that's obviously not the standard that we're building to we're chasing perfection but there's some forgiveness there but there's very little forgiveness in mounting your rear um, flat mount disc brake. And yeah, exactly as you say, like for anyone who's ever had a, a set of flat mount that is not in perfect alignment, it has ruined many nights of mine and, you know, facing and facing and just <laughs> like tweaking and trying it, it's to... It's definitely made me late to a couple of rides. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, I'm looking at the before like or like, you know, prior model in this one, I'm, I've got pictures up on my screen and I, I'm just on the non-drive side on the brake mount side. I mean, I count visually five welds that you no longer have to do so you go well basically you go from five to two because now you're just welding 
each end of this dropout into the, either the C-stay or the chain stay, as opposed to two different posts for the flat mount and then the actual dropout piece on top and bottom. And then um, the one I'm curious about is the little, the threaded insert for the fender mount or rack mount, right? So like those typically have to be kind of like welded in on a standard tube, but here you have it printed in. So are you printing the threads for that bolt and everything? Yeah, and so uh, we do, the threads are printed, um, but they're also chased. And so one of the interesting things is the promise of 3D printed titanium is astronomical in that, you know, and we, we did, as I mentioned before, like we've, we've pursued this project with a few different suppliers. And when you start, you know, and, and this is not our first 3D printed titanium project. This is, uh, I guess, this is the third thing that we've, we've rolled out into the bikes, but it's, it's the most complex to date. And so when you start, everyone has these grand promises that you can print to these insane tolerances and nothing ever needs to be machined. Every part comes out perfect from the, um, you know, from the printer when it's finished. And that's just not true. It, you know, there, this is a way more organic process than I think most appreciate. And we can circle back to that in a second. But to the question about the threads, it means that, yeah, you can print the threads in, but really, if you want them to be perfect and smooth and consistent, it's better just to tap them. And so that's what we do is there's some posts printing machining that's done to these to make sure that those really dimensionally critical surfaces are perfect and the reason for that sort of organic like you know there's more variability in this than you expect is you know i, I think the, the impression a lot of people have is that like you design this part in a computer and you hit print and it goes to the printer and out comes the part and to a large extent that's true but what we can't lose sight of here is like just how we're talking about how all this welding changes the or introduces distortion into the rear end of our bikes. If we go back to how this actual sintered part is made, it's entirely a welded part. And so the yeah, amount of heat that's that, thrown into every thousands millimeter of instead of five. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's just one <laughs> infinite weld. And that's really interesting in that, you know, how you lay these parts out on the bed and how that bed is filled with other parts, because you're not just printing one at a time. You know, we're printing like 25 at a time that fill the machine and how those are all oriented together really determines the dimensions of the part at the end. And, you know, you can definitely you can send parts to the printer that will just destroy themselves as they're being printed because they're taking way too much heat in one certain orientation and it just rips the thing apart. And so there is a very real learning curve. And I think this is where, especially for a company at our scale, where we're making, you know, several hundred bikes a year and not tens of thousands, finding the right partner who's who's fairly far up the learning curve with uh, with this printing was key because these are things that would just destroy a company our scale if we were trying to come up the learning curve ourselves. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, like I, I, most of the 3D printed products I've seen are using the, the little nylon thread, so plastic. And those you, you get, you see the lines of it printing because it's essentially doing something similar, melting plastic, you know, layer by layer by layer. And here I'm looking at yours and they look beautifully finished. But of course, these are studio photography, you know, of a finished unit. So do they come out looking this good or are you having to smooth them, sand them, polish them? Or and then like with the, the brake mounts, do you have to chase them or you know face them or whatever to get them flat yeah the the short is we do have to do some post print finishing and and it's more than some and uh, and so this has been sort of the final hurdle that we're working with is so the printed part is pretty dense but there's still some porosity to it that you don't have in a billet piece and again from a material standpoint we're at like 99.5 percent solid but that's not 100 percent. and so you know in finishing them 
it's really difficult to get them to be a perfect uniform finish. And what we're finding is, you know, you can do it and it's never going to be 100%, but you can polish and polish and polish these parts until, you know, uh, like literally for days and you're going to smooth over a bunch of that grain and you're going to get them to be a much more uniform looking product. One thing that we discovered is that the, the parts are heat treated after they're printed and that gives us a huge jump in fatigue life. Um, you know, it adds like 75% to the fatigue life of the parts. So there's this huge extra increase in safety factor that is done when we heat treat it. But after heat treating, the parts are almost unfinishable. Like we just, we, we polish and polish and polish and sparks fly off the part and you just can't get the thing smooth. And this was an interesting thing that we found because we, when we were prototyping and, you know, working these into production, we weren't heat treating the parts because these aren't going into customer bikes. We wanted to make sure they fit with our tooling and that we can finish them. And so we go through the whole process and we get these things looking beautiful. And then we get our batch of production parts that we've heat treated and suddenly we can't finish them because they're just, they're so hard. And so, yeah, the, the process that we've landed on is they get printed, they get sent to us, and we now do some post-print work on the part in-house to make sure that we get the finish to where we want it and the surface is looking good. And then we send them actually back to Indianapolis for heat treating so that we get the strength of the part to where it needs to be. And so it's all an aesthetic consideration just in how much of the sort of porosity of the printed part that you want to keep and how much you want to get rid of. And so we made the conscious decision that we want to keep some in that this is a 3D printed part. And, you know, I think we need to be honest to our form of manufacturing, just like, you know, the rest of a titanium bike. I think one of the really beautiful things about it is that you can see every weld, you can see every mark, there's nothing that's covered by filler or paint or, you know, it's it's just, it's a very honest medium. And so we we kept that with the dropouts, but we do touch them up a little bit because they come out just looking a little bit rougher than I think we'd want on uh, on a finished customer bike. Cool. So then if you're polishing, do you actually print them like just ever so slightly thicker or like that outside wall thickness a little bit thicker just so you have a little bit to polish away? Or Yeah, the wall thickness is definitely taking into consideration the post printing machining or facing or, or polishing that's going to happen. But it's it's also it's a really, really tiny amount, mostly because the, the stupid stuff is so hard that in order to take away a, an appreciable amount of wall thickness would take, uh, you know, our poor finishing department days. <laughs> so, right, right. Um, so do you are you like I, I'm just imagining somebody like sanding or grinding, but are, do you just like throw them in a tumbler with some kind of like grit and or medium and they just they tumble themselves smooth or how are you doing it? No, yeah, it, it's super manual. And so, yeah, there, there is a tumbling that's done at Silka or can be done at Silka, you know, right when it comes out of the machine. Um, but the actual finishing that I'm talking about is uh, we use a like a rotary wheel on a high speed polisher. And so there's, uh, yeah, you know, a very real human being holding and brushing and it makes an awful noise. And uh, and yeah, you're just, you know, it, kind of like you see those ads for, uh, uh, you know, how to clean your car wheels with a little brush on the end of a drill. It's basically that just at, you know, 10 times the speed and uh, and get the job done a little bit faster. Very cool. So I, I did have some questions about the heat treating process. Is it because, you know, you talk a little bit in the uh, literature you sent over about how it, you know, either realigns the metal grain in the centimeter. How does it do that without like actually melting the part? Like, how do you do that without changing the shape of the part as it's getting heat treated? Yeah, it's a good question. And so I, I should preface by saying, you know, I'm not a materials engineer. And so if, if any are listening, then, you know, feel free to absolutely blast me in the comments because I will be parroting what 
the actual materials engineer on the project has told me. But uh, yeah, what it does. So the primary goal of heat treating is to increase the fatigue life and the fatigue strength of the part. And one of the things that can cause part failure is crack propagation. And so where, where a crack begins in a part and then how easily that crack can spread through the part. And where a crack starts in most parts is through a variation in the density and the structure of that part. And so when you've got a, you know, a billet piece of titanium, then you have a very smooth part. Or if you've got a tube, like a down tube on a bike, that's an incredibly smooth part. There are very few places in the surface finish of that part for cracks to begin. And so it's very rare that you would see a, you know, a failure begin right in the middle of a smooth tube. It can happen, but it's not a typical mode of failure. In a 3D printed part, we've got all this surface roughness that's really obvious in it. And that surface roughness, that's the porosity of the part that continues throughout. And so as a starting point, it is much easier for cracks to propagate in a 3D printed part relative to an identical part out of CNC. The strength parameters of this part to use more material and you know, suitably strengthen the part so that there's enough buffer for um, to have the, the sufficient strength and fatigue resistance you need. But that said, the promise of increased fatigue strength from the heat treating is really huge. And so, you know, this is like, there are a bunch of different ways that you can heat treat a part. And for 3D printed titanium, particularly, the standard in aerospace is that it's done in a vacuum at a particular temperature for a particular amount of time. So our parts are done, you know, for two hours in pure vacuum at temperature. And the temperature is, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's just over 800 degrees Celsius. And so, yeah, you are essentially melting or, you know, realigning the grain structure of the metal. And the result is that it increases the density of the part and it reduces the ability of cracks to propagate to start and to run in the part because you're reducing the number of nodes that those cracks can begin at. So essentially it's you're increasing the uniformity of the part which makes it harder for the part to fail under fatigue. And the results are really huge where you know certainly I'd be happy to send you some papers on it because it's it's quite well researched for aerospace because this is great we don't want our bikes to fail but you really don't want you know the <laughs> the internal component of your boeing engine to fail and so yeah the the fatigue life increase is huge and i don't know that a lot of 3d printed titanium parts that you see are vacuum heat treated but it's definitely something that it's hard for us to leave on the table like the cost is not enormous it's it's something but compared to the cost of these parts in the first place, it's, you know, it's not increasing it by half. It's, it's increasing it by, you know, several percentage and the, the increase in strength is just enormous. So, yeah, it's not bad. I, I guess I should ask, like, what is compared to some of the prior versions of dropouts you've done, whether it's CNC or Forge or whatever, how are these way more expensive? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no sugarcoating that. Yeah. But there's a balance here too. So the benefit that we get on a cost front is that it is carving a pretty enormous amount of time out of the bike. It's carving several hours of extremely high skilled labor out of the bike. And so, you know, we're a pretty small team. And so if I can have uh, essentially the we're expecting rolling these dropouts out at our scale to save us just over 20 hours of, of welder time a week, which is huge. You know, that's like us having so does a it kind of offset the additional cost of the So the frame price maybe doesn't change a lot or Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't 
recapture 100% because these parts are five times more expensive than the CNC part that they replaced. But we're able to capture some of that back by reducing the construction time. Cool. And then you mentioned earlier on that, you know, one of the benefits is that you can create a hollow piece with still a lot of shaping and all that as a single piece. But you didn't mention is inside, you're not just leaving it hollow, right? You're actually like building like a lattice structure in there and a, and a tube port for the wire for the rear derailleur if you're running a Shimano or a Campy. And all of that is stuff that nobody's ever going to see, really, hopefully. But it's cool. What's the benefit of all that besides easily running a wire, of course? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's one of the things that is so fun about these 3D printed parts is that there's a whole world of secret stuff inside that, uh, that yeah, as you say, like it's invisible. Unless you have a set of these dropouts before they go into a frame in your hand, you never see it. And so, you know, one of the just fun things that we decided to do fairly late in the project and maybe fun is relative but fun for me um is that uh, you <laughs> know, engineering fun yeah exactly and and so we you know we've got a whole range of sizes of these and you know what we would typically do when we're inventorying parts like this is you write on them in sharpie you know what the part is but what's really cool about these is we can print it right into the part so before these go into a frame you can look into the end of it and it tells you the angle that the rear dropout uh the rear chain stays and seat stays meet at so you know okay this is a 74 degree one this is going to go into a custom frame that needs a 74 degree angle between those parts and it's totally hidden once it's welded in it's it's never seen but yeah they this structure so i guess there are a few things happening inside the first is the structural one that you alluded to where there's this the proper word for it is a gyroid or like a lattice structure that is internally reinforcing the outside skin of the part and so the whole part is this really efficient structure where you've got the outside skin that's bearing a lot of the load and it would be hollow and empty but instead of just leaving it empty we can insert all this internal reinforcement that sort of webs through the entire hollow of the part and adds an enormous amount of strength and so that's that's one advantage but the other advantage is yeah we can we can hide things inside that that help either the usability of the part for the end consumer or help us in the manufacturing process and so one is yeah, we can print in a guide for your cable. And, you know, frankly, the run of a cable through the length of a dropout is not terrible. You know, I wish we could run this through an entire, I mean, every other internal cable run that <laughs> that we've all struggled with on a bike, but, uh, but we'll help where we can. And so, yeah, it just makes the running of your cables super clean. One of the other things that we do is that we actually have that integrated on all models, but on bikes that are going to have wireless shifting, we leave it covered. So the internal structure for that cable port exists, but it's closed off on the back um, so that your wireless shifting bike has no extra cable ports. It's totally clean and, uh, and you know, perfect because we don't need extra ports for you. But on a bike that's going to have a wired drivetrain, we can just open up this tiny port and suddenly we've got internal cable routing that runs cleanly through the whole dropout. And the, the last interesting thing that's happening inside is that the way that titanium is welded is it can't be welded or shouldn't be welded in the presence of air. And so when you weld titanium, you need to displace the air around the part. And so the way that we do that is we purge the inside of the part by running a gas like argon through it. And so you fill the part. So if you're welding a bike frame, we've got all these fittings and you fill that frame with argon and you jacket the weld on the outside with a flow of argon. And then you weld, and that way you are sure that there's no oxygen or no air present that's going to, you know, embrittle your weld. When we introduce this lattice to the internal part, one of the side effects of that is that it's essentially a bunch of baffles that's flowing on the inside of the part. And baffles really restrict the flow of 
gas, like our argon. And so we actually had to go through some iterations of redesigning the internal structure in order to make sure that it is appropriate for the flow of argon to make sure that we've got a perfect purge of the weld. And it's one of those things that, uh, you know, it's so obvious in retrospect, but until we get to that part, it's like, oh, you know, we never thought of that. We have to make sure that all the air can come out. So there's this whole system where it, uh, yeah, it can flow out of all of that internal lattice. So when do these start rolling out on your bikes? They're going into bikes now. And so they've, uh, um, yeah, bikes built over the last two or three weeks have been quietly getting these upgrades. As a brand, we're so lousy with rolling out fun new stuff like this, because as soon as it's done, we're just like, well, we want it to go into all the bikes. And so that's that's basically what we've done. So every bike that's ordered now um, that has, you know, flat mount rear disc brakes gets a set of these dropouts. Um, but even bikes that were ordered some time ago, you know, those that are getting built right now are getting this this nice upgrade in the dropouts. Nice. Very cool. All right. So you had alluded to future uses of this technology and some other cool stuff you're working on. What what can you tell us about what's coming later this year? Yeah, it's a pretty exciting year for us. So a lot of the projects that we've been working on have been in process for two or three years. And, uh, you know, the, the last two years in cycling have been interesting and eventful. And so um, certainly we've had some pretty substantial delays in, in our new product launch. So we're really excited that a lot of these things are, are back on track and, uh, and coming out. So we've just recently launched a, a new lineup of forks. So we, we design our own forks and we resell those to a bunch of other frame builders as well. But, uh, but we're really trying to make fairly forward thinking forks that are giving the geometry and cable routing options that is specifically aimed at uh, at boutique frame builders. And to go with those forks, one of the things that we haven't launched yet is we're, we're really far along in a, a fully integrated cockpit setup. And, and one of the sort of centerpieces of that is a, a really beautiful 3D printed titanium stem. And, you know, a bunch of the benefits that we see or a bunch of the learnings that we see in a project like these dropouts carries over really well to something like a stem where cable routing is such a devil and suddenly we're able to easily guide cables through a stem that are fully internal but you know we can print this help all the way through so you've got a tunnel so it really really assists in the build and and you know changing your <laughs> your front end setup without cursing the cable routing through a fully internal setup so yeah we've got i mean that's the next 3d printed bit in another of the things that we've just quietly been shipping with customer bikes, we do our own titanium seat posts and we've redesigned our heads of those seat posts to be a 3D printed part. And there's a nice weight savings and nice strength benefit there. But I, I think the thing that, that we're really excited about is this this new front end with, uh, with a 3D printed tie stem fully hidden cable routing and, you know, relative ease of working on it. And also it's very pretty. And you know, I don't think we can ever lose sight of that. Like there, it's one of these things that there are a bunch of even aftermarket, like aimed at smaller or medium sized builders. Um, you know, there are these setups that you can buy from different vendors that have like a, a headset that works with a great big head tube that will run all your cables inside, but it's huge. And I think that's been one of the real difficulties that we've had is the size and the weight penalty that a lot of these integrated setups come with we've just been so uncomfortable with because, you know, I think we're really chasing a level of refinement with our bikes that, you know, like our, our whole idea is we want to spark joy with our bikes. We want to make sure that like, if you've got five bikes in the garage, ours is the one that you just want to ride every single time. And 
if it's really ugly, that spark disappears. And so it's got to perform <laughs> at absolutely the best level, but like we can't lose sight of the emotional connection too. And, you know, it, it better be refined enough that, uh, that it keeps you excited. Very cool. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate the info. I guess one last question just for Campy fans out there, because I, I know some brands, their wire routing for rear derailleurs are not compatible with Campy's current wiring for EPS. Will this one fit EPS wires as well as the new slimmer mono stuff? It does. Yeah. And yeah, that was a fairly late in the game uh, debate that we had. And uh, we're we're pretty huge fans of Campy. And uh, and so, we yeah, uh, it, it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes, and actually, now I, I was thinking about this while you're talking about you know the delays with everything that was going on in the industry over the whole COVID era. Is sometimes that that extra time gives you opportunities to think of new things and further refine products or or catch these little things, right? Was there anything over the last two years that you guys were almost ready to roll on, and then the extra time just led to a real light bulb moment? Yeah, yeah. I mean, these dropouts are are a perfect example <laughs> where these have been imminent every month i would have told you oh they're going to launch next month for the last <laughs> two years and uh, and it has been the largest source of pain because honestly they seem <laughs> so simple i think it's one of those things that you see in the finished product and the design should look simple like they don't call a lot of attention to themselves when they're in the finished bike unless you're you know a hyper bike nerd and, and you just love these things but yeah, there's just we've always found some tiny little improvement, some tiny little refinement. And whether that's in how they relate to our production methods or how we can make the part better apply to a wider range of models that we have or, or you know, whatever the refinement is. But, you know, it, it can be really difficult to finally say, OK, pens down, because there is always, always, always a better way to do everything that we're doing. But eventually you actually have to put the part into a bike and then decide, okay, I'll, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll park it here. And, you know, the next version in three more years is, uh, is going to incorporate some of these new ideas. Very cool. Yep. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate your time. And that was fascinating for me. I answered a lot of the questions. Well, pretty much every question I had about 3d titanium printing. So I guess if anybody else has questions, leave them in the comments, we'll have some pictures and links and everything else in the show notes for this episode. And yeah, if you got questions, leave them in the comments and Michael or somebody from number 22 will jump in and answer some questions for us. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tyler. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, head over to bikerumor.com slash podcast and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there, plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.